I'm Melis Campbell, CEO and founder of Chemia and Chemia Reset. I'm really passionate about helping pharma sales teams to feel confident about using technology to improve healthcare professional engagement. Is a human element of digital transformation, enabling people to use technology is what I'm really curious about. And to explore this topic, I've been inviting inspiring pharma leaders uh, to come here to talk to me so I can learn from them and share their perspective. So I'm delighted to welcome Paul Sims from Impatient Health today. Hi, Paul. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about Paul and his background. Uh, Paul is CEO of Impatient Health. He's often described as the pharma provocateur for rethinking. Uh, he called himself a noisy introvert. Um, but Paul does this deliberately, and I think it's because Paul knows there's a huge unfulfilled potential within the life science industry. And I think he does it because he really cares for us to tap into that potential. So Paul's journey started in 2003 with IFA Pharma, and we know IFA Pharma went on to become pharmaceuticals' largest and most influential event. Uh, the company was uh, acquired by Reuters in 2019, and Paul. Um, move direction and set up Impatient Health in 2020. Um, Impatient is an industry think tank and a consultancy. Um, Paul has the most enviable <clears throat> network within the pharmaceutical industry. I honestly don't think there's anybody worth knowing that is not already, already connected with Paul. So I know I can go on and there's so many other interesting things I know about Paul, but I just thought I'll keep this um, chat focused on digital transformation, Paul. So I'm so happy that you're here with me. And I just wanted to ask you, maybe, I mean, you work for Eiffel Pharma for 17 years. What I'm really curious to know is what inspired you to found Impatient Health and what's your mission in this company? So, um, yes, I ran these large events and they became influential, which is wonderful. But I myself felt like I had just become a talker. And I wanted to be a doer. As you said, I describe myself as a noisy introvert and introverts, they like to sit in dark rooms and figure things out and build things. And that was very much me. I didn't want to have written on my gravestone that I'd talked a lot. Um, and of course, you know, that's what, what happens at these events. It's, it's part of the process, of course, but, but I wanted to build and I wanted to work with um, less people, but work with people who I thought were really moving the needle people like Kimia uh, and, wow. and others who 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 you know weren't satisfied with the status quo willing to try something new um, and I had fortunately collected you know um, a few of the addresses over the course of my conference time and um, I suppose you know that was my starting point I wanted to work on projects with these people and I wanted to do do real things that I felt would make a real difference and mm -hmm. you know that's you know, just, just what gives me the satisfaction of, of being in this industry. I think we're a young industry. We are very underdeveloped. And when you think about the potential to help with patients, but also from a business perspective, we mm. are 1% of our journey. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I was in a networking meeting um, yesterday, um, connected with other female founders in the UK who have entrepreneurial tech uh, ideas. And, you know, we are so far behind of using technology to, you know, engage and connect with patients and also 
with you know healthcare professionals and payers so it's good that you set up the company so we can shake things up a little bit. Paul, you mentioned in a previous interview that pharma industry is science-centric. How can the industry become more patient-centric? Well, being science-centric is not a problem. Um, uh, the thing I think you have to recognize is that they are two different things, mm. right? So can you be patient-centric and science-centric at the same time? Possibly, but you definitely have to use a different language. Um, the way I kind of think of it is that science is very exciting. The science that's going on today is improving exponentially. The, the things that are possible in the lab are incredible. And you hear about discoveries every single day, and it's, it's mm -hmm. genuinely exciting. And if you think of that, you know, that's on a curve, it's growing, growing, you know, very steep. But if you think about the science that reaches the patient, you know, that's a different curve. That's a much gentler curve underneath. And um, the problem is, of course, is that the gap between those two, two, two lines is, is what we could do, but don't. You know, the science that exists, but doesn't reach the patient. And some of that gap exists because of regulations and all of the testing we need to do and all of the inertia. But think about what that gap actually represents. In many ways, it represents deaths and, and, and people that we could have cured, but didn't, right? And you hear these incredible stories of, of people who created companies because the medicine existed, but it couldn't get into their best friend's hands before, you know, a very fatal <laughs> event occurred. Uh, and that's pretty motivating, as you can imagine. So I think of us as being a science-centric industry, and that's no problem with that. But the patient-centric part is about closing that gap, about getting that gap as close as possible to what the possibility of science can bring. And of course, it's not just access. It's not just bringing the patient into the same room. It's enabling the patient to use the medicine, having them want to use the medicine, having them want to be their own agent, have the agency to, to look after themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that when we change the storyline and, you know, so much of the work you do is about giving people the skills and the confidence in front of HCPs, if we can change that storyline to be that kind of mutual benefit of closing that gap, I think that that narrative is very inspiring for the HCP. Um, so I'm not saying we stop talking about medicines. I'm saying how we talk about medicines, the context we put it. It's got there's so much, so much storytelling that we can do that we, we just ignore right now so yeah what you say is music to my ear Paul um, is about aligning the agenda between the patient's need the payers and the healthcare professionals need and also the pharma needs and I think if we align agendas we can help build much healthier relationships and in fact that's our motto in Kimia aligning agenda to enhance healthcare and I find mm. by having that approach we actually change the relationship we've been able to build trust yeah, and it's one reason why I admire what you're doing. You don't just oh, see this as, you. As, as, you know, training. You see this as a part of a bigger picture and a necessity to actually make that kind of positive um, loop actually actually work. Paul, um, I'm talking about you, you. You're quite, um, you know, outspoken on LinkedIn. So you had a post recently when you talked about Viva is signaling the demise of traditional um, pharmaceutical sales representative. I'm curious to know more about it. Can you expand on it? And what do you see as like the future of the sales professionals in this new normal? Okay. 
well, there's no such thing as a new normal. It's new normals. Uh, I think that there's yeah, no true. beautiful plateau that we're going to, people think, I think that, you know, we're going to find this beautiful, this place so we can all relax again. I don't think that that is the case, unfortunately. But um, uh, to answer your question directly, Viva is obviously a, uh, a huge influence. I've watched this company come from nothing to, to being incredibly dominant. And they recently conducted and a very exhausted, exhaustive survey. I was um, very impressed by the number of people that were consulted in, in this um, investigation they did. Mm -hmm. And it was found that um, digital communications, which may or may not include the rep, were on average three times more effective in actually influencing the position. And I think everybody knows that rep behavior, rep impact has reduced over the course of the, the pandemic as we've pivoted suddenly to pure digital means as we, as we obviously had to do. But what I think that people don't recognize yet is that um, the rep doesn't lose their job. They need to be repurposed uh, and they need to understand. And it's very hard to do if you've been doing a job for a long time, very hard to, to change, but People should not be scared of their jobs, but they should be adaptive. It's the classic Darwinian, you know, um, it's that which is uh, willing, you know, willing to adapt that is more likely to succeed rather than that which is the strongest. So um, the, the Viva um, uh, thing, I, I highlighted it because here's the company that has traditionally been the champion of the rep. You know, these guys were a cloud CRM provider before they became anything else. So absolutely the champion of customer relationship. Uh, and of course, the rep being the absolute uh, definition of that. And the same company now is signaling that um, the effectiveness of the rep is diminished unless that changes. And it's not just a matter of um, going online. It's a matter of having the skills and the organizational design and the materials and the know-how to actually do that properly. So I thought that was worth highlighting. Uh, and confidence is a massive part of this. Um, creative confidence, um, confidence to use the digital tools, confidence that, and it's very true, the, the, the demise of the sales rep has been broadcast many a time falsely in the past, and the sales rep is not going to disappear overnight. Our industry knows that things have to change. It doesn't mean the sales reps are going, it just means yeah. that the way in which we do things are different. So if we want to succeed as companies, we need sales reps there, there is no question to that whatsoever but what the person does whether they listen as well as sell and what type of selling they do I think is the thing that we need to look yeah. at Paul I couldn't agree with you more I think technology is good technology can speed up the process of you know analyzing data in a logical way but technology doesn't have common sense sales professionals would always be needed but they need to up, up skills themselves to be able to use these different tools and machines to draw meaning out of it. And Paul, um, what would you say to those people who are sticking their head in the sand and waiting for HCP engagement to go back to pre-COVID ways? Yeah, the those those who are dreaming of returning to normal, I'm so sorry, but that dream I think will become a nightmare um i i think the viva report shows that traditional methods are less effective and you know we may not that may not be common knowledge at this point but i think it's going to be borne out in the facts and figures before long yeah. and i think that um i often describe us as being in the era of the non-expert right now mm -hmm. basically the era where um 
it's not about being the best. It's about exposing yourself to the market um, more and being willing to adjust accordingly. It's the same concept as, as agility, you know, yeah. being willing to expose your idea to the market and have the market decide rather than you in your illustrious experience be the decision maker. And recently I've criticized leaders as being a bit like Julius Caesar still, you know, holding a thumb that, yeah. to, as to whether they, they should uh, approve or disapprove any, any, any particular initiative. So we have to be willing, you know, who are the people in the organization? If there was a burning building around the corner that would actually rush towards that burning building. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those people may not be the leaders in the organization. It's a very small group of crazy people who are willing to sacrifice their own personal safety um for others those are the people that are willing to go against the grain and usually you know in the past we've derided them we've you know we've dismissed them and it's really hard to take new ideas and weird people seriously right yeah. but mm -hmm. now is the time this is the era where the weirdos should be elevated or at least listened to is actually a good segue to my next question so what new skills do you think the sales professionals need to adapt to survive and what are the things they should unlearn to be able to wow that's perfectly up for that question um i think that there has to be a basic level of curiosity now so it's kind of the opposite of arrogance very similar to what i've just said it's the age of non-experience so climb down from that ivory tower climb down from that know-it-all position which is hard Salespeople succeed when they're confident right when they know what they're doing so it's very hard. There may even have to be a period where you are doing less well. And I wish that managers would give a little bit of a leeway to enable that a bit more, because it's not all about hitting your, you know, weekly, monthly um, targets at the moment. It's, um, there needs to be a bit of room to go backwards and to have that innate curiosity and being willing to kind of adapt and change. Our customers don't know what they want either right now, right? <laughs> so, you know, I don't think any of us know what the world's going to look like in, in, in a week's time, let alone a, a year's time. Um, so, you know, being willing to sort of see what works, you know, try stuff, experiment a little. Experimentation is not a word we're very comfortable with outside of the R&D department. We, we see it as dangerous almost, even though we're supposed to be scientific companies, like I said, based on experiments. Um, so... Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is be willing to go backwards a step and have that curiosity. The mm -hmm. second step, of course, the second thing, of course, is exactly what you guys um, specialize in at Kimia, which is recognize that communication has changed. Recognize that our customers' communication has changed. You know, I advocate um, treating, you know, being less, um, less sort of, um, uh, praiseworthy of the KOL. KOL has dominated for medical affairs, certainly a lot of our, uh, you know, attention. Uh, but the KOL is no longer necessarily the strongest influencer in our customer. It might be, you know, the, the person most digitally connected that is the, the most influential now. As the medical meetings all disappeared, particularly, and they all became online, it was the person that was sort of uh, distributing the news, putting their opinion on it, you know, socializing it, creating communities around it that was became the most powerful. They're not necessarily the most learned or the most prestigious or the person with the most letters after their name. Mm -hmm. So this kind of customer requires a different kind of treatment. They, they want things fast. They want things dirty. They want things quick. They want to communicate things in a social media sense. So our customers have, have changed a lot and we have to be able to change 
with them. And so I think that um, learning how to communicate both in a kind of face-to-face -face environment, but also, you know, the channels and all of the stuff that you just said about being in the right moment at the right time. Mm -hmm. The thing is that the right time is kind of changing as well. <laughs> you yeah. know, what, what, what is that definition of time is changing as well. Yeah. So you'll never know the answers unless you have that curiosity and you'll also just have to, to learn and expose yourself, you know, never stop learning, of course, expose yourself to, to the markets and to training of various different descriptions to get yourself um, set for the future. And then, of course, internally, you'll be seen as the future of the organization and not as the past. And that's fantastic. And you know, Paul, what we find in practice, when we actually some of the projects we've doubled the sales in a matter of 12 to 18 months or we've reached market share of 80 percent in a matter of 18 months we find it's not about lots of contact it's not about huge coverage and frequency it's talking to the right people and be very deliberate with the communication it's not about chucking everything at them and see what sticks it's about just really careful communication in a very personalized way when they need it. That's really drive projects. Um, so cutting down the noise and just being really deliberate, it actually gives a higher return on investment. So that's interesting because none of us may have guessed that two years ago. We may not have guessed that, but you have found that through yeah. real I mean, exposure. Find, yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, we get market access and we grow brand grow brands exponentially and I find I honestly can say in any account that we work it's probably I communicate with only two or three people but those two or three people are the people who are the influence policy or responsible for pay and they are motivated to do something about the proposition that we have to offer if you find somebody is not interested is not meeting their need we go somewhere else so I think the digital gives us a facility to be everywhere and nowhere if it choose to be. So we can choose the accounts we work, but also we can be really deliberate in that communication to the right people. And I, I find what's really interesting is Paul, is change the dynamics. They see us as their part of the solution. They don't see us as somebody who come and just deliver key messages for them. Um, I know about the shared care protocols. I know about the guidelines. I know about the formulae, probably just as much as they know about it and how changing that could have an impact on the healthcare economy they're trying to, I know the deficit, I know how much deficit they've got in their budget, because I'm making my business to know, because that knowledge is inside that allows us to motivate people to move in a direction that can actually deliver patients more services, more care with a defined budget that they have. So yeah, I can talk about that for hours. But Let's talk about the Caesars, the Julius Caesars that you mentioned and the leaders, because for the sales professionals to be able to have that autonomy and have that like comfort to maybe um, get out of their comfort zone, the culture of the organization and the leader's expectation really matters. So how do you think the leaders can help to allow the sales team to have some freedom to you know, exercise their muscles mm. in this new way of working? That's a very good question because <clears throat> what I'm going to say is probably going to be a little bit controversial. Um, I advocate um, looking at how we measure sales, re-looking at how we measure sales. Um, I read an interview with the CEO of Google the other day, Sundar Pichai, mm -hmm. and uh, 
I was very interested that he is trying to reorganize Google around measuring effort rather than outcomes. Uh, outcomes is a holy word in our industry, of course, and it's obviously we're looking for patient outcomes, but what he, he was talking about, of course, was sort of internal outcomes. And the, the fact is that as an organization matures, and Google is becoming a mature organization these days, they, um, they inevitably become very rigid and very risk averse. And by rewarding effort, you kind of enable that experimentation still to continue. So you've got mm -hmm. to be really careful if you're laser focused on just outcomes and performance all the time, which I know is almost the antithesis of sales in itself. Imagine a salesperson getting to the end of the year and say, well, I didn't sell anything, but you know, I've, I've learned lots of stuff. They probably wouldn't stay in their job for very long. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting situation because I really think that if we, if we change the, the metric to more of a learning metric, as opposed to just a performing metric. And, and, and we treat that as a significant part of, 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 of what we do, then I think that we'll see that change. And that's going to hurt because immediately you're going to worry about your bottom line or your top line. You're immediately going to worry about, um, about uh, you know, hitting all of the targets that you've grown up with. And, you know, uh, what kind of a sales culture is one that doesn't define itself by how many sales? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit, controversial um, but it is um, absolutely necessary to create a learning organization imagine we accounted for learning in the same way that we accounted for dollars and cents imagine we had like spreadsheets on the learning that get distri distributed just as like money does around yeah. the organization and treated with as much sanctity as money uh, because that's actually what a lot of startup companies are doing now they call it innovation accounting because because mm -hmm. in a startup you're not making any money yet but you've got to progress you've got to prove to investors that you're progressing so you have to have this kind of innovation accounting system before you've got any money in your accounting system and there are lots of tools that are being developed around this and i think it would be really beautiful to see a sales organization with the maturity and the longevity uh, that would actually treat learning market learning market-based learning by the way mm -hmm. as sacrosanct and possibly at the top of the tree i would even argue it's the reason why large companies don't innovate as well as small ones because yeah. small ones create that accountability through the metrics and large ones they probably never have any accountability because they're trying to look good in front of their boss the whole time yeah and look how many views i got on my video instead of look how many actual customers i converted is the kind mm -hmm. of metrics that we that we that we use right now i find it quite refreshing one of our clients said to me the other day is let's try this um i'd rather we try this and got the learning from it rather than where we know we go and we're going to get the business. Because if you make this one work, it could be really big. And I thought that's such a right attitude because it allows us time for experimentation. And I, I think we pilot things, we try things. Some of them work, some of them don't. And when they work, they become strategy. So I think we need to have this mm. mindset of um, testing and trying. Yeah. And if it's not working, get rid of it quick. But if it's working, then maybe give it some more yeah. airtime. Get rid problem, of it quick, but, yeah. but take hold of the learning. Yeah. Do you know what I find really an, uh, interesting, Paul, is bigger pharma companies have more revenue and more resources to invest in piloting and testing. But even when it comes to this digital transformation, a lot of them are sitting waiting for someone else to make the move and do the yeah. learning so they can tap into it. But the yeah, smaller companies- the are, risk. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's still, still, I think things are evolving so fast. It's like trying to jump on a moving train. You can't sit back and pontificate too long. You need to act quickly and try and test things. But I think we need to ch change the culture in the senior leadership. 
you're echoing kind of what I said. It's the age of non-experience. It's the age of being willing to try because the truth is that none of us know what's going to work in this uncertain world. If any of us are parents, then we'll know that mm -hmm. when you look at your children, you see they love that song or they love that app or they love that game. You look at it and you think, how could anybody like that? You know, what is that noise? <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't understand it. It's a different language from the one we're used to. Yeah. And, you know, we've got to recognize as older people now that um, we just don't know. We'll never know. Mm -hmm. we, um, we, recently, uh, we recently took an intern, 23-year-old, straight out of university. And I said, your job is to just tell me constantly and challenge me and say, what am I not doing? Uh, what, what do we need to do differently to appeal to younger people, be able to kind of move fast, challenge all the things we do, because we do, we're doing it because we've done it and it's work, but maybe there's a different ways of doing it. Bring your perspective because we can learn from it. Looking at other industries give us better clues about what we could do. Pharma is really rich with data and science and, you know, resources, but some of the other industries, you know, can we can maybe learn from that and bring that learning to our industry. But I was just going to ask you, um, just tell me a little bit about what you do when you're not working. How do you spend your time? How do you unwind? Because unwinding and unplugging from all these tech is another skill that we all need to develop to be able to come like. Yeah, you actually inspire me, man, because when you go on holiday, you tell the world and that means that the world knows you're going to be away and they actually respect it whereas I'm hiding my my holiday time always I'm embarrassed by it I'm a total workaholic and I love my work you know I consider it, it would literally be the thing I would prefer to do I almost see work as a kind of a game in many ways that, mm -hmm. that, that it's fun to try and win and try it fun to try and you know succeed at but um even a good game you need a rest from <laughs> so yeah. So what do I do? Um, I I have a huge passion. I have a very strange kid. I've been interested in sort of architecture and interior design since I was very mm -hmm. young. So I love uh, kind of property development and I actually get on my hands and knees sometimes and, and do the work myself. So so that's sort of a weird, weird, very expensive hobby, obviously. I, I, I steal other people's money to do it most of the time. <laughs> um, and uh, I obviously love just ideas, curiosity. I get so much inspiration, not from our own industry, but for reading about others. I think you're probably similar on that level. I uh, So I try to immerse myself in in other things. You've probably seen I do a prediction session every year, which sort of almost forces me to to go and immerse myself in, in whatever crazy subject I can to see what could be on the horizon. So, yeah, I love your prediction. I love your post. And I think, Paul, keep doing what you're doing. Shake up the status quo um you know encourage us to get out of our comfort zone because that's the only way we're going to innovate I, I keep saying um, to my team we need to have more Thomas Edison moments you know we need to have more Thomas Edison experiments and just try things and you know maybe put money in some of the things that we don't know whether it's going to work or not but yeah. if you don't try we won't know so um yeah yeah, Thomas Edison wasn't the most moral of men, but the one thing that he certainly did do is experiment, and he was very resilient with that. Yeah, and I was talking about the experience, not all the other. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So, Paul, if I was going to ask you to give like one top tip to organization about the human transformation of digital healthcare professional engagement, what would you say that would be? One top tip for human engagement. Um, I think I would have to say, stop leaving yourself at the door when you start your work. So 
I often find it really strange how we grapple with concepts like trust and transparency and authenticity when we talk about our companies and our, and our work. But all of these things, all of us know how to do. If, you know, if we have a family, if you have a relationship, we know what trust involves. It involves not being perfect. You know, you don't, you don't turn up a date and read out your CV. <laughs> you know, you, you turn up and you have a conversation and you talk about the goods and the bads. You talk about the highs and the lows. You, you're a human. So don't leave your person, your, your human, you know. And by the way, that's the source of your uniqueness and differentiation and what will actually mark you out professionally as well. To have that confidence to to be yourself, I think is 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 really key, and you'll figure out how to do the trust stuff because you already know it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Paul. That's great um, top tip. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. I'm just going to round up this wonderful chat with you to share with our like viewers that uh, we develop uh, Kimia. We develop Kimia Reset, which is a DIY fun and engaging cloud-based uh, training platform that focuses on the human digital transformation to engage with healthcare professionals. And it's been described by some sales professionals as the Netflix of formal sales training and has really helped sales teams across many countries to increase their confidence, to increase the quality of their interactions and increase the quantity of both face-to-face and virtual engagements in some countries as much as five times compared to pre-pandemic. We are not standing still. We are developing new and exciting content for effective omnichannel behaviors, mindset, and we're actually developing content for Viva CRM adoption. If you're looking for a solution to help your sales team to gain confidence and embrace digital technologies, get in touch with us because we'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much. And is a wrap up from me and Paul and hope you enjoyed the insights that Paul shared with us in this interview.